Well, good morning. I'm so happy. This, this weekend just excites me. If you look around and see all the young people who are serving, uh, it just makes me smile. I think that's great. I think it's great when a church can be truly intergenerational um, because, you know, sometimes we have, hard, we have a hard time with that. We think, you know, kids need this space and teenagers need this space and adults need this space, but uh, really the, the pattern for believing, especially if you look at Titus, is that the older would teach the younger, both by example and one-on-one. I mean, it's, it's awesome. This is, this is what it's meant to be. So uh, we're thankful for that and valuing the next generation even here this morning. If you're new around here, we want to say welcome to you. We're glad that you're here with us. And uh, there's a very easy way for you to get connected with us here. It, there's a seat, uh, seat back in front of you. You'll see a card in that seat back. And on one side it says welcome. And on the flip side it says prayer. And we would love if you would fill both of those out. Uh, and uh, if, you're, if you're new here and connect with us, and especially if you have prayer requests that we could pray with you and for you about, we would love to do that. We find it a joy and a privilege to do that with you. And so we would ask you to do that, and you can put it in the offering plate as they come by here in a moment, or you can turn it in at the welcome desk, and we've got a a little welcome gift for you if you're new around here. Not if you're not new around here. Don't try to go get free stuff, okay? Uh, But in all all seriousness, we are so excited to be spending our time this morning praising God together, and, uh, and we're glad that we're all here together this morning. So let's just pray, commit the rest of our time to God, and ask Him to do something amazing with it. Father, we thank you for your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. And uh, Lord, we do celebrate that you very clearly tell us in your word that we are to not forget about the next generations, but that we are to remember them and to bring them up in the knowledge and admonition of you, and not just as parents. Lord, this is a, a group effort. So Lord, we thank you for signs of life, which is the next generation in our midst, Lord, that, that uh, we want to raise them to know you, to love you, to follow you, um, to, to live that self-sacrificial life that we're called to in Christ. May we always point them to the gospel. And Father, we, we are so just in awe of your kindness poured out on us through your son, Jesus, that we just want our whole life to be gratitude to you. So through our treasures, our time, our talents, or whatever it is that we have, we just ask that you would be um, in in practice, Lord, Lord, over those things, and that we wouldn't consider any part of our life as being held away from you. Lord, we ask this morning that for those in here who maybe uh, are coming in, but they have not yet trusted in Christ, if there's anyone in here like that this morning, that today you would reveal to them um, the folly of sin and, Lord, the... uh, the, the pleasures that are at your right hand forevermore when we trust in Christ and uh, call them out of darkness into your marvelous light. We would give you glory for that. And the uh, Lord, pray that we might be obedient uh, from the heart to your word, which is able to save us and make us wise, Lord. So Lord, for all these things, we just thank you and ask that you would do your work here this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We are in a series in Ephesians. And today we're going to be looking at Paul's idea of what does it look like to watch our step or to walk carefully as believers. Now I just want to uh, give you just a real quick illustration about something that happens in our home. Uh, our kids have two, there are two games that are very similar. One is called Fox in the Hen House. And another one is called Lion in the Witch's Den, which I feel like is a very Narnian, C.S. Lewis type game. But both games involve the kids going into the basement and shutting all the lights off. 
and one of them will go, you know, come upstairs and count and then go down, and in the darkness, you have to bump into where people are hiding, okay? I don't have to tell you as a parent uh, how stressful this game can become. Uh, we've had multiple injuries, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but we don't want to take all their fun away, so. Um, but I can, the first time your kids are like, we've got this new game where we're going to go downstairs and shut all the lights off, make it pitch black, and then we're going to wander around and, and bump into each other in the dark. And you, you, just know, you just know something's going to happen, right? Because it's, it's not wise to, to stumble around in the dark. Um, and although, although it can sort of be fun, the, the principle at play here is walking in the dark with no light can be dangerous. And this is exactly what Paul is going to talk about in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, John Stott, uh, who, who was a great Bible teacher and uh, theologian, uh, in his commentary on Ephesians, he says this, that Paul writes his letter with a logical progression. He begins with identity, like who are you in Christ? So first you need to know who you are. Everything Christian life starts with identity. And secondly, theology. So we go from who are you in Christ to now what do we believe? What should you believe? And that's a step that sometimes gets left out, right? We feel like, oh, I'm in Christ. I've trusted in Jesus. Now I go be a Christian. But knowledge is necessary to walk the walk that is pleasing to God. We can't just kind of wing it. I'm going to wing it. Uh, that's why we have God's Word, right? That it's not only able to make us wise into salvation, but in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, we see that it actually is able to make us complete and ready for every good work as a believer. So it, it prepares us. God's Word prepares us. So we do need theology. You have to have robust, sound theology. You have to know something about who God is and what that means for us. And then that translates into ethics, or how do we live? How then do we walk if we are in Christ, if our identity is in Christ, and we know who God is, and we're learning more and more about how He would have us live, then how does that apply? How do we apply that in our context? If you are in Christ, how then should you walk? And I want to just share, before we get into this, I want to be very careful. See, the, the, the tricky thing about Scripture is there are some passages that you read that it would be very easy to fall into legalism right? And there are some passages that you read that would be very easy to fall into just not caring about sin at all. And, and that's the, the balance, is that the gospel says that in Christ, right, when you are in Christ, there's, there's nothing that you could do that's good to make Him love you. And in Christ, there's nothing that you could do that's bad to make Him not love you. And that's the danger, right? So sometimes we might fall on one side of that, one of the ditches on the side of the road, which is either in legalism where we think that it's the, the, our behavior that makes us right with God, or in thinking that we don't need to behave because we're right with God. And both of those are false. There is justification, which is we are made righteous in Christ, but then there is sanctification, which is part of the gospel as well. And that is as we walk more and more with Christ, we become righteous. We become holier, more set apart. So our life does change. And Paul's going to walk us through this. How then should we walk? First of all, we are to walk in love. Walk in love. Verses 1 through 7. Paul starts this chapter by saying, therefore, and so the, the passage before this, if you see verse 32 of chapter 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, as God in Christ forgave you, therefore, be imitators of God. You see that? We are to imitate God. We are to be imitators. Our, our walk, our life should look like His. Well, what does that mean? 
as beloved children. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that there's a greater title for, for, that I want to be known by in Scripture than a beloved child of God. Because in that, I am secure in God's love for me. I don't have to go searching elsewhere for, for satisfaction or assurance. I find that in Christ. I am beloved. And that's, that's wonderful. So as beloved children, those whom God loves, He says, walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, Christ loved us, and in doing so, in loving us, his pattern was he, he goes to the cross. He lives a perfect life. He goes to the cross, and he gives up himself for us. It was a fragrant offering to God. It was an atonement sacrifice to God so that we might be made right. Jesus took our punishment. We take his righteousness. That's a good switch for us. And that's the way in which Christ displays His love. So then Paul says, we should walk in that same love. And that type of love, our identity as beloved, calls for us to respond with the pursuit of that love modeled by Christ, which involves giving and dying. We, we live in a culture in which we think love means if I feel great about somebody, boy, that's love. That you can kind of fall in love and then fall out of love, but that's not love, Right? We, we are told very specifically that God commends him, his love towards us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, that we are not lovely or lovable in our sin nature. When we are in our darkness, where we are walking in sin, that we are not lovely and lovable, but that we are made lovely and lovable because God chose to love us before we ever did anything to seek him out. That's love. And it's proven for us in that Christ gave of himself and died on the cross. And if you want to know what love looks like, that's what love looks like. Young ladies, young men, you want to know what love looks like when you're looking for a future spouse? Giving and dying. That's love. This is the, the pattern that we are all called to. And walking in love means self-sacrifice not self-indulgence. And see, the reason Paul is saying this is because Ephesus was an interesting culture. Uh, in Ephesus, the, the, if, you, if you read through Acts chapter 18 and 19, you will see that there's this big dust-up because uh, as the, the apostles were preaching Christ and Him crucified, there was a goddess who was worshipped in Ephesus called Artemis. And you, you would see a big, a big riot actually started in Ephesus because uh, they were taking business away from Artemis worship. And Artemis worship involved a lot of really terrible stuff, a lot of drunkenness, a lot of illicit sexual behavior, uh, a lot of, uh, honestly, quite honestly, some, some weird cult prostitution and gender-bending rituals. Um, to, to please Artemis. And so they were living in a culture that was highly sexualized. And I think we are pretty close to being there, right? But I think this is pretty relevant to us right now in our world. Now, what does this have to do with love? Well, very simply, Paul says that walking in love means that we are self-sacrificial and not self-indulgent. Walking in the love with which Christ loved us, doesn't, it, it means we don't go after the same indulgences that our culture goes after, or we don't fall into the trap of thinking that this is love, right? That's, that's a big statement. Now, everybody says, well, like, love is love. I, first of all, I don't even know what that means. I know that the Bible says love is dying to self. That's what love is. 
Love is Christ on the cross. And Paul shows us now what walking in love requires, rejecting the pattern of self-indulgence of those who don't know Christ. So, first of all, we avoid the actions of worldly self-indulgence. Now, this is interesting because it's a, what we call a family fifth. So, on fifth Sundays, we're inviting all the elementary kids to come into the services with us. And we hit this passage in which Paul's going to talk a lot about, uh, about sexual immorality, which you might be like, why would we talk about this with kids around? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. But Paul, very clearly in verse 3, says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. So first he starts off by saying, don't act out sexual immorality. And he uses three terms, sexual immorality, <clears throat> which could involve things like uh, uh, adultery, homosexual activity, um, illicit, any sort of illicit sexual activity, prostitution, impurity, which is in, in that realm of like the cultic uh, sexual worship or, or like even being around sort of that aura of those things. And then the third thing is covetousness. And the word for covetousness here in the Greek means a greed for lust. So it, it means an actual like a desire to participate in those things. And Paul covers all three of those things. And he says, we as believers, our walk should not involve any of those things. In fact, we shouldn't, they shouldn't even be named among us. See, I I think we've gone away from the understanding, and again, it's so hard not to, not to be legalist in this sense, but I, we are so afraid to draw a line anywhere because of what people will think of us as Christians, that we, that we will even like shirk the lines that God Himself draws. Paul says, make, make no mistake about this, like, your walk in Christ does involve sexual purity. Not, not just as an individual, but as a church. We, we should be very serious about these things. It's not, it's not a light matter. It's not something that's just going to take care of itself. God says that we should be pure from these things, not, not partake in them. It's not proper among saints. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So now Paul ups the ante. He said, not, not only should you not be participating in these things, but you shouldn't even joke about these things. You shouldn't talk about these things in a, in a light-hearted manner. You shouldn't be silly with these things. Like, sin is a serious business. We, we avoid even thinking and talking about self-indulgence because we realize what the end of that path leads to. And I said in the, I said in the first service, and I'm increasingly bothered. I, I love comedy movies, okay? There was a time when comedy movies were funny, and now they're just gross. I mean, you, can't, you cannot find a, a funny movie anymore, hardly, that's not raunchy. And, and I even think sometimes we, we're just so casual with our, with our language regarding sex and sexuality, and, and we're very flippant about it. And Paul actually warns believers, like, part of your walk is being very serious about the things that God finds to be serious. And especially, especially with young people. I mean, it is so, it's just so flippant. Like, if you get a group of, if you get a large group of teenagers together and you start talking about um, things like sexuality and, and sexual impurity, many of them won't bat an eye to it because it's not strange to them. It's not strange for them to live in a place where they have identified that there are, like, 
you know, 30-something genders or that you can love whoever you want and it's completely okay and you'll tell a teenager that and they'll be like, yeah, that makes sense. It only makes sense. It only makes sense if you're not paying attention to what God says. And Paul says, don't be flippant about this stuff. Don't take this lightly. Instead, there should be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Well, then he goes on and says, uh, you may be sure of that. He talks about sexual immorality again. So what does he mean, let there be thanksgiving? I think he means, let there be thanksgiving for God's good design in sex. We, we should be giving thanks that God, in the book of Genesis, we see in Genesis 1, 24, that he gave us a pattern for sexuality. And it is, for a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. That's the pattern. There is no other pattern. There are no exceptions. There is no third way or fourth way or fifth way out. There is a man and a woman united in marriage for life and every form of sexuality outside of that union, God says, is unrighteous. That, that's just the way it is. And I know even somebody in here might, this morning might be like, that's not very loving. Well, according to worldly standards, you might be right, but according to God's standard, it is very loving to remind people that God is the one who gets to call those shots, not us. There's a standard for sexuality, and we should be thanking God for His good design in that. And we should be teaching our kids about that, because I'll tell you what, if we don't talk to our kids, if we don't talk to the next generation about God's good design for sex and, and help them avoid using it casually or flippantly, you know who's going to? Netflix will. YouTube will. Snapchat will. And the public schools will. And none of those areas are going to present righteousness to these kids. And that's not, that's not me having an ax to grind or banging on it. I'm just telling you the way that it is. Brothers and sisters, we are a called-out people. We have a different pattern of life that's dictated by the way in which Christ walked in pure righteousness and holiness. There is no other way. There's no other way. God's love for us, in fact, produces warnings for our walk. Look at verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's, that's, he's writing to Christians, and he's saying, Here, here's, here's how seriously you should take this. Here's why you should pay attention to your walk and where your mind goes and where your heart goes and, and what you desire to be involved in, because you, you might be sure of this. No one who practices these things is actually God's. No one who makes a life pattern of practicing behaviors outside of God's standard for living it can call themselves a Christian. It's impossible. And this is where it's hard for us because it, it, it almost seems like legalism, but Paul is not telling you behave so that you can become. He's saying because you have been bought with a price, you follow Jesus. Because you have been purchased by the blood of the perfect lamb, you walk in his ways. 
Because you are in Christ, become who you are. He also says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Right? At this point in time, don't you think a lot of the Christians at Ephesus, like they were finding that as they were walking through the marketplace and people were asking them to get in on all sorts of, you know, cultic worship or to just relax their standards, that even, even some teachers in the church, and you can see this, Paul, when he's meeting with the Ephesian elders, said they're going to come wolves into your flock and they're going to start teaching false doctrine. And then you also see to Timothy, Paul says to Timothy about Ephesus that there are going to be false teachers who sneak in and sow false doctrine. And then when we also, finally, when we get to Revelation, the, the, the good thing about Ephesus is they don't tolerate the Nicolaitans who were uh, people who tried to work in like sexual expression as part of their faith in Christ. And, and uh, the, the angel says to the church in Ephesus, hey, good job not abiding by that thing, right? But it is extremely, extremely important. It's vital for us that we understand that, that no matter what someone says, here's the reality. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is such a hard, this is such a hard sermon to preach. I want you guys to understand, like, Anytime we hit the word wrath, especially in our culture, if I even say God has wrath, people immediately want to be like, no, God is love. Yes, God is love. God is love. But God is not love because he turns his head away from our sin. God is love because of despite our sin, he himself clothed himself in flesh and lived the only perfectly righteous life ever and gave his life on the cross and he calls us to repent of our own way and believe in his way and forsake every other hindrance of sin that would keep us from looking at him and follow radically after him. That is love. Love is not letting everybody do what they want. Love is not letting us decide the standard. We've been lied to. Be sure of this. That type of life has no inheritance with God. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, Paul tells the Corinthians, you've been bought with a price. You want to talk about a church that was a mess? Go read 1 and 2 Corinthians. Paul had to correct a lot of this type of behavior. Let no one deceive you. Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So he says, look, listen, you aren't the same. Why is Paul telling us all this? Because he wants you to know you're not the same. We are not the same. And again, I, I always want to correct like bad thinking that we have in Christianity. Like when people are like, oh, you know, there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians. We're all sinners. No, guys, that's not true. There is a difference between Christians and non-Christians. The difference is repentance and belief. We, we didn't earn salvation with our works. It, it's because of God's grace. But when we are made new in Christ, there is a definitive difference in our lifestyle from the lifestyle of people who are not in Christ. At least there ought to be. That's what Paul's saying. We, we, can't, <laughs> we can't say things that make us feel better to relax a standard that God has said, this is who you are going to be if you are in Christ. Paul, Paul is nailing us with, with some really hard things. And, and he amps it up. He says this, walk in light. And he, look, at, look at this. It's a reminder of identity, verses 8 through 14. He wants us to walk in light. Don't become partners with them, so don't participate in those activities. Why? For at one time you were darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. He says you were darkness. Not even you were in darkness, but you were darkness. Your deeds were dark. You didn't just walk in the darkness and you had some way of figuring out what was pleasing to the Lord. Paul in Ephesians says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, right? When we talk about salvation, salvation is not God helping somebody who's trying to help themselves. Salvation is, you were dead, Christ made you alive, period. Dead people don't do anything. They don't ask for help. They don't seek after God, Romans chapter 3. You were darkness. You were hopeless. But now, you are light. So where you go, the gospel goes with you in lifestyle, and in word. You are light. Your walk should not just have light, but it should produce light. Verses 8 and 9, this is what he says, right? The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. We become who we are. Because we are light, we walk in light. And so as we walk through this world, we live in a different manner than the people around us who don't know Christ. We don't operate the same way. It doesn't mean that we are like, I, I want to I be very clear. It doesn't mean that we're like better, right? And that's, that's where we get mixed up. We're different. And we have, we have grace. And we have a better hope. But the, the advantage that we have in, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, he says that, right, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what we have in Christ? We don't just have forgiveness of sins. We have cleansing from our unrighteousness. And so increasingly, as we're forgiven, we walk in a manner of righteousness. Yes? Yes. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are obedient. And he says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It takes effort. It takes effort. Everybody look at me. Young people, look at me. I know a lot of people are like, I don't have any idea how to please God. I don't, want, I don't know what God wants from me. You know what God wants from you? It's in here. It's in here. Right? You'd be like, well, don't we have the Holy Spirit? Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. And first of all, the, the first help you can get from the Holy Spirit is for Him to help you understand how you should walk according to Christ from His Word. And then once you're through His Word and you know His Word and you've committed it to your heart, then you can move to the next steps of following in obedience to the Holy Spirit and being attentive to His Word. But unless you've covered this, you're on step one. This is where it's at. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Gratitude leads to careful examination. But listen, watching your walk is not legalism. It's not legalistic to say, I want to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. If we call that legalism, that's a shame. Wanting to please the God who saved us is not being legalistic. It's showing gratitude. Become who you are. And now Paul actually says, not only should we walk in light, but look, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now Paul goes up again. He goes up another step, and he says, in fact, not only should you not participate in these things, but you should expose them. 
You should, when you go Christian, when he says when to the church at Ephesus, when you go out into this community in Ephesus that is so unrighteous that everywhere you go, your behavior is so different that it exposes the behavior that's sinful. That it's, it's such a different way of living that when people look at it, they immediately feel uncomfortable. You expose it in the way that you live as being different and righteous as, as opposed to the unrighteousness of the world, and you expose it by calling it out. You know that sin always multiplies when it's in darkness. When sin is allowed to sit in the darkness, it will multiply. You've experienced this before, and I've experienced this before. If you sit on sin and just think it'll take care of itself, it will not take care of itself. It will ruin you. Somebody amen that. You, some of you know what I'm talking about. I've been there, and some of you have been there, where the longer you try to hold it back or sit on it or hide it from, from the light, the worse that it gets. And Scripture says this too. First John says, right, people won't come to the light. Because why? Because then their evil deeds get exposed. So as long as I stay in the shadows, unrighteousness multiplies because people want us to keep away from it. Don't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong because then I'm responsible for it. And we live in a culture that wants to multiply darkness so that we can do the deeds of darkness. And we are uncomfortable when light shines forth and exposes that in fact, unrighteousness is an ugly thing. We can confront sin and not keep things in the dark. He says, expose them. Don't just, listen, believers, we are not just to like sequester ourselves off and be like, well, at least we're unstained by the world. We are to be salt and light. That means we have the uncomfortable calling of walking into the spaces of unrighteousness and by our behavior and our speech, we call it out. You know, there, there's a lot of things that are happening in this very time period that are from the root of what Paul was dealing with. All sorts of darkness comes from especially sexual self-indulgence. And let me, let me present a few things to you that have been living in the darkness for a really long time in our culture and, and around the world and, and just recently have been being more and more exposed and, and it's turning ugly. What about trafficking? What about trafficking? Does it bother you that the Super Bowl, which is the most popular sporting event in the world, also is the most popular trafficking event in the world? That young girls and boys are trafficked into wherever that's going to be so that businessmen who are living in unrighteousness and people who are living in unrighteousness can kidnap children and force them into prostitution. but now that's coming to the light. Or what about abortion? You know, for a while you were able to hide it. You hide what it's really about, but in the last couple years, now that we've seen it by video, now that people actually know, I sat, I sat through an, an abortion seminar when I was a junior in high school, and it was somebody who used to work in a Planned Parenthood clinic. And when I was a junior in high school in 1993, I remember sitting in that, and I was sick to my stomach because I couldn't believe that this was actually a thing. And now we're at the point where you have, uh, you have New York basically cheering that we can kill babies as they get older. We don't tolerate this stuff. We expose it. We call it out as what it is. It's genocide. It's horrifying. But you know, that's a fruit of self-indulgence. You know that, right? 
or abuse. And even cases of abuse in all sorts of churches and denominations across the nation. And, and finally, now these things are coming to the light. We don't sit on these things. Stories of people in churches who were like hiding cases of abuse as they were brought forth in their church. We don't, we don't hide these things. We bring them to the light. We expose them. Walking in light isn't just living right for our own sake. We care about people enough to expose the conclusion of a life of unrighteousness. You say you love people. Christian, if we say we love people, then our hearts should be broken that they're walking in a pattern that's going to lead to eternal death. And so even if it makes you uncomfortable by your lifestyle and by your words, walk as children of light. Gospel proclamation faithfully confronts sin inside the church and presents an entirely different pattern of life to those outside the church. This is why the pattern of the body of Christ in Scripture is to put out professing believers who will not walk in light. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if you've got somebody in your church that's walking in unrighteousness and they want to continue to be, call themselves a Christian, you put them out. It's the most loving thing that you can do for them is what Paul says is turn them over to Satan. Let them see the folly of their ways. And if they're a true believer, they will come back repentant. This is hard stuff. Our walk looks foolish to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. And I want to be very careful to say this. Love does mean that we validate God's image in image bearers. So we're kind. It's not an us versus them, right? We have an enemy. Paul will say that in chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. So we pray for them, but we love them enough to confront them. We love them enough to expose unrighteousness and show the, the natural end to that path. And along the way, we're going to look stupid to the world. Verses 15 through 21, Paul says, then walk in wisdom. Considering what he's presented to us of the dangers of walking in self-indulgence, then how should we spend our time? He says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise. And what is wise? Verse 16, wise is making the best use of your time. So Paul says, uh, walk wise, so make the best use of your time. So diversif diversify your investments and uh, store up a lot of wealth and to make sure your kids go to the right college, get them in like 14 different activities so that they're well-rounded kids, right? Sing their praises all the time so that they become self-indulgent. And then, then we once, you know, once we make it to the end of our life, we can just kind of kick back and be like, well, Jesus can come anytime now, right? No. Paul, Paul tells us what making the most of our time looks like. Look, look at this. It's really weird. It says, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The cultic practice around them, I told you there was a lot of drunkenness because they thought it would enhance their worship. And Paul says, oh, they think that these things will enhance their worship, and, and in fact, they're worshiping false gods. So you know what will enhance your worship, Christians, is to be filled by the Spirit and address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know why worship is a big deal? You know why we say that worship gatherings are part of the discipleship pathway? One, because it's commanded in Scripture. The other, because God actually says it's a really good use of our time. That coming together is a good use of our time. 
Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is a good use of our time. Making music to the Lord is a good use of our time. Verse 20, giving thanks always together is a good use of our time for everything. In verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is a good use of our time. Making the best use of our time. There's all sorts of things that we can do. And Paul actually tells us that making the best use of our time, we value worshiping together. We address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We value spending our time being thankful. And we value lives of submitting to one another in relationships because we value the difference Christ has made and we know that he has conquered the darkness. You see how that changes life? What do we value? How are we using our time? Walking in light is not just about avoiding sin. It is about doing the things that are eternally significant. And when we gather together as believers and celebrate who Christ is and live out thankfulness and submission to one another, Paul says that's the best use of our time. That's the best use of our time. We devote our time to things that look foolish to the world. But here's the good news. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who always puts us on display in Christ, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Paul says that we are led in triumphant procession by Christ, that we don't have to worry. Listen, why is it a joy to walk in Christ? Because as we walk through this world, we are walking in triumphant procession. You guys realize we win, right? Believer, you realize that, right? We, we win. He has won. There is victory. We don't just try to snake our way through and hope that we can escape. i got to get out of here. Right? We walk in triumphant procession. We can do all these things because we know that our walk matters. And though it might not look smart to the world, we realize that as we go through this world, as Christ was an aroma to God, we are an aroma to those around us. For some, it's death to death. For some, they see us and they say, I don't want any part of that. And I, I, I I can't stand those Christians, right? And some, it's life. They say, man, I don't know what is different about you guys, but I want that. But we walk because we have victory in Christ that starts in this life and carries on to eternity. And so we make sure as we walk through this world that we walk as a fragrance carrying the sweet smell of who Jesus is in our behavior and in our words. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you. We thank you for saving us. What an amazing thing it is to think about, Lord, that that we were hopeless and helpless, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And we give you praise. We would pray that everyone would know that there's salvation in no one but Christ. All these other paths of walking, trying to find our way, they're going to end in destruction. 
walking after you ends in eternal life. And we praise you for that. We thank you for the life that we have now. And may we walk worthy of the calling that we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.